Amen and amen. Awesome. We're finishing up the book of Jonah today. We're in chapter 4. And we have been trying to investigate this book with a question, what's God like? And respond as we discover the answers to those questions. Who is God? Instead of asking, who is Jonah? And we have found that God is gracious and powerful and involved in bringing us to repentance, which ultimately gives Him glory and at the same time gives us joy and peace and satisfaction. And that those two things are not separate in the way God set up living for us. That we can give Him great glory and have great satisfaction at the same time. <clears throat> if you're familiar with John Piper, he puts it this way, that God is most satisfied with us, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. So that it actually is part of our worship experience to be as happy as we possibly can. And to be as happy as you possibly can is to get as much of God as you can. And Jonah shows us who this God is that we need and that we should be completely open to experience and love and follow. Chapter 4 is 11 verses, so let's stand. We'll read the whole chapter. I'll ask for God's help, and then we'll be looking at various ways God demonstrated his love to Jonah, and certainly he demonstrates his love to us in the same ways. <clears throat> But it displeased Jonah. Now what displeased Jonah was the repentance of this great city that God cared about. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry and he prayed to the Lord and he said, Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. It is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and he sat to the east of the city, made a booth or a tent, a shelter for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm and attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night, perished in a night. Should not I pity Nineveh, the great city? in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. God, help us to see who you are and love who we see in this passage. 
when it comes to who you are. To see who we are and that repent that we are like Jonah. And love your faithfulness to him and know that it can be your faithfulness to us. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So one way God demonstrates his love is with incredible patience. Great patience. We know that the list of God's uh, loving attributes, or excuse me, let me rephrase that, the list of love's attributes are in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, 4 through 8. We know also in 1 John 4, 8 it says God is love. So we can assume that those attributes are also God's attributes. And we know that the first phrase is love is patient. And so here God is demonstrating great patience as a way of showing his love. And he's tolerating amazing arrogance on Jonah's part. One of the the arrogant examples of Jonah is that he is twisting words that should be words that are praise to God and he's twisting them into a complaint. If you, if you look at his words and you just change your attitude, it actually makes for a pretty good praise song. When he says in the middle of verse 2, I knew you were a gracious God and merciful and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, please take my life from me. It could be, a lot, you know, surrender because it's better for me to die than to live. I mean, this could be uh, something we could have sung this morning. Lord, I knew you were steadfast. I knew you were patient. I knew you were relenting. Therefore, take my life. This is not the way Jonah is saying it, of course. And it's, it's so arrogant. It's comical. Can you imagine the, the heart of arrogance he must have to say, Oh, God, I knew you were loving. I knew you were relenting. I knew you were patient. This is why I didn't want to go. I knew if I obeyed you, good things would happen. Oh. And, and yet God knows Jonah's heart and is dealing with Jonah's heart and chose Jonah to do this and is patiently listening to Jonah saying all this as he's twisting words of praise into complaint and then twisting a mission that was supposed to be of love into a mission of hate. He is hoping, 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 hoping that these people will be abolished. He is hoping for death and violence and plagues. He is hoping he is a missionary of hate and destruction when God sent him to be a missionary of love. And God is just patient with him. The worst thing perhaps he's doing and the greatest display of God's patience is that Jonah is twisting words of praise, twisting his own mission, but he's twisting the image and the identity of God. When he, he's trying to pull God into his image, which we all do and must repent of. Now we, we, we really like to have a God in our image when God demands we be in his image. And so Jonah would really like God to just be a God of Israel and not even all of Israel, but males. And not all males, but males over 13. And not all males over 13, but those who are very religious. And so he, he keeps narrowing who God should be for. And, and in the center of his narrowing is himself. <laughs> so 
It's, it's like the Venn diagram, and one circle's us, and then the other circle's other people, and as much as they overlap is the extent that we can like them and that we think God likes them. And if there's no overlap, then God probably doesn't like them because, after all, I'm God's favorite. So the more you're like me, the more he will like you. This is the attitude of Jonah. And he's really upset that God is breaking his paradigm by saving these people and by sending him to do it. God, Jonah wants God to be a tribal deity. And God is trying to demonstrate to Jonah that he is a global God. And God is patient because God is love and love is patient. And he has a pattern of patience. He's patient here with Jonah. He, he doesn't snatch him up by his collar and shake him around. And he doesn't turn him into salt, which he could do and it was done, done before. He doesn't do any, anything like that. He's just listening as Jonah is complaining. He was patient. We see that pattern. Being patient with Job and being patient with Adam and Eve and being patient with Moses and Abraham and being patient with all his apostles when he was here in the flesh as Jesus. And certainly I hope you'll recognize that now as he's with us as the Holy Spirit that he's continually patient with us. And in his patience, rather than coming down with commands and judgment, he asks questions. So our second example is that God demonstrates his love with penetrating questions. Almost all that God says in this chapter comes in the form of questions. The first question he asks in verse 4 is, do you do well to be angry? And Jonah doesn't answer that question. Apparently, he just storms off and goes and builds himself a tent on a hill. When God goes through the fiasco and the creative uh, intervention of the, the, the worm and the plant and the sun and the wind, he comes back with the same question. Verse 9, do you do well to be angry? And then he adds about the plant. He's narrowed his focus. But I think about how this is a pattern for God to show his love as well. Those of you who are in education know, and we're, we're, we're trained to, to think this and to trust this, even though it's hard to do, that good teachers can, can lead a class with questions. And if you do it poorly, it comes off as manipulation and no one likes that. But if you're skilled at asking questions, that good teachers ask questions so that then students make discoveries. And, and God's just being a good, patient, wonderful teacher here, asking questions so that Jonah can make discoveries and it seems to be his pattern as well to Adam and Eve who told you you were naked to Cain just a few days later where is your brother to Job when Job cries out and says I'm innocent he says oh really where do you store the, the snow and the rain and how do you control the tide and where were you when I did this just three chapters of questions for Job to make a discovery And I love that in this, this book of Jonah where he's controlling the weather and he's controlling the fish and he's controlling the plant and he's controlling the worm and he's controlling the sun and he's controlling the east wind, he's just asking questions to Jonah. That he's controlling all 
non-human factors and trying to woo and reason with and talk with and be patient with the human that's involved. And I wonder, and you know, we have to be quiet to know the answer to this and we have to read Scripture and we have to... But certainly there are questions if we stopped and listened that God is asking us that we should be listening to and making discoveries. He stopped Paul, remember, in his great encounter and said, why do you kick against the pricks? Again, a question so that Paul could make discovery. Here's kind of Mike Powell's elaboration. This isn't exactly out of the text, and it's merging education and Scripture, which is an okay thing to do, I think. Um, There's lots of theories about leadership that God is certainly the prime example of. And one of them is that if you want to go fast, go alone. And if you want to go far, go with others. There's another one that says that when a great leader leads and the people arrive, the people look around and say, look what we have done. And so here you have a God. This blows my mind, the grace of God. Here you have a God who could accomplish anything he wanted to do, but what he wants to do is accomplish things through us, which completely slows down the process. And that what he gets for the slowdown process is hearts that love him and that it's, that it's, that it's worth it. That even the Scripture tells us his seemingly delay in coming back to us is out of patience and love and grace that more people might repent. That he is the, the only person who with complete authority could say, because I said so. And instead he asked questions. That you read the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus never says, because I said so, and always says, it would be better for you. It would be better for you. You've heard this, but it would be better for you if you did this. this. This God who is so interested in us making discoveries that, that he's so patient that he just, just softly and subtly leads us and, and then light bulbs come on and who knows the millions of things he did to get the light bulb to come on. And then we own it because we think we discovered that when he was behind the scenes the whole time. So he's trying to get Jonah to have this aha moment and displaying incredible patience and asking penetrating questions. And then he has this amazing creative intervention, the third example of, of God's love. And this has been a theme throughout Jonah. We've talked probably every week about this, how he's, he's, he's moving things together to a point of repentance. Here he sends, we're told in verse 6, sends a plant to give Jonah shade, and Jonah is all about that. And he takes advantage of it. Only to send a worm to destroy the plant, to take away Jonah's shade, bring out the sun, crank up the wind, and cause Jonah to be faint. According to verse 8. Jonah's so frustrated, so angry, so arrogant, so put out that he just wants to die. It would be better for him to die. He cannot go back to Israel being the prophet 
who brought Nineveh to repentance. (laughs) He would rather die. The story of his legacy in his mind would be so much better if he died. He went to Nineveh. He told them God was going to destroy them and he died doing it. That's a good story that fits with how he thinks he's supposed to live. And so he's asking God, just kill me. Just kill me. God asks him about the plant. Verse 9. Do you do well to be angry for this plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. And then the Lord explains the metaphor, much like Jesus would explain parables in the New Testament. He said, you loved the plant and you were thankful for the plant. You didn't labor for the plant. It came up one day, went away one day. How, how, can, you, how can you care so much about a plant when there's 120,000 people that you care nothing about? That's a good question. And it would be a challenging question for us to ask. What things in our life give us shade, give us comfort that we love that we are more concerned with and would be upset if we're taken away while at the same time we neglect people who we ought to be tending to certainly we're like Jonah in that way and you can always take analogies too far and I don't want to take this one too far but but God compares the city to the plant And what the plant did for Jonah was ease his discomfort. I don't think it's out of bounds to say that there was some discomfort for God to have Nineveh wicked. It bothered him and he wanted the discomfort eliminated. And like the plant would give Jonah shade, repentance would bring God happiness and joy. He would like it. He would move from discomfort to comfort when all of these people repented. And he's saying, Jonah, don't you see that? The city's like that plant. The difference is, you didn't tend to that plant, and I've been tending to them. I love them. I've been worried about them. I've been concerned for them. And then I chose you to be the hero of the story and get to go tell them, what is your problem? Jonah, I just want to die. My problem is I'm breathing. Just kill me. Can't believe you're going to save them. We'll try to wrap up the whole book and this verse at the same time. I've still got lots on my notes. But here's the last way God demonstrates his love. Is he demonstrates his love by loving, caring deeply about great cities, which we might apply this morning as groups. He says in that last verse, comparing it to the plant, you pitied the plant. Should I not pity Nineveh? That great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. Jonah, this is a great big city that needs to be reached. So I want to try to talk about how God cares for groups. And... You know, the danger of when we, we think about what, care, what God cares about or we put God in categories because so often times God can be 100%, like in this case, he can be 100% for individuals, 
uniquely want to reach individuals, and that does not disqualify him at all being concerned with groups. So you can't say, is God concerned with groups or individuals? Because the answer is yes. So we've been talking mainly about his concern and his precision with individuals, but here at the end, he gives us a glimpse of how he loves groups. And this is a pattern throughout all of Scripture that he wants to reach groups that he chose one nation, Israel, pulled a people out of no people and had a group, and then that that group was supposed to reach other groups. That when Jesus came, he, he, he had 12 guys. He, he got a group around him. When he gave the Great Commission, he talked about groups. And go to the city, Jerusalem, this area, Judea, go to this country, go to the ends of the earth. But there, there's, these, there's these groups he's concerned about. One verse in the New Testament says that that as Jesus came into the city and he preached, and he says, for this reason I have come, the reason of preaching to cities and caring about cities. So, I guess the concluding challenge I would give you is to repent, and, I'm, and this is how I've repented this week. To repent from seeing the world as a hierarchy kind of ladder where you fall somewhere in a pecking order and instead seeing your, yourself as someone who's in a territory and has a group and your job is just to share as much love as you can in that group. That employment is just an arena to share as much love as possible. That a household is just an arena to share as much love as possible. What Jonah and what we do too often, what the Tower of Babel in Scripture was all about, is what we like to do is create hierarchies, not territories. We like to create hierarchies and say, okay, I know where I am. I'm not the, you know, there's 12 people here and I'm probably third and what could I do to move up? And, and we know who's above us and we know who's below us. And it seems like what God calls us to, even in the prayer of Jabez in the Old Testament, Lord, expand my territory. It seems the, the pattern of Scripture is stretching, staying flat and stretching far and expanding God's influence and not creating a hierarchy and a pecking order. And God's really trying to work on me with this. I've just been, some of you have heard, and uh, June 4th started as the principal of uh, Gary High School. And so it's so in the flesh tempting for me to think, wow, I just moved up the pecking order. I mean, I report to one person now that no one else reports to. Instead of I report to three people that 50 other people report to. And God is continually working on me to say, you know, if God cussed, he'd just say a cuss word. He'd say that's, that's nonsense. <laughs> Sorry, I was editing myself there. It's nonsense. It's a stronger word than nonsense. It's wicked and sinful and awful. That, that the idea is that you, you're in a territory and there's people around you and you're supposed to love them as much as you can. And that is exactly the, the, what Jesus did, that he would come from a throne to earth and, and say, here's my territory and I'm just going to love people as much as I possibly can. And I wonder if we just repented, all of us, because I know you relate to this, I know we deal with this, if we just repented of the hierarchies and repented of the pecking order, and that is what Jonah doesn't want to do. In Jonah's mind, he is above the Ninevites. There's a pecking order, and he's above it. 
And if they trust Jesus, they, they, they move up in standing. And if he tells them about God and faith, he moves down because there should be no interaction. And God said, would you just look at a big city? Would you just see the city and just get in the city and love people around you? And that, wasn't that the heart of Jesus when he was over Jerusalem and he says to a city, oh Jerusalem, oh Jerusalem, I just want to bring you close. How often I've wanted to bring you close, but you weren't willing. And I just know how, how healthy a church would be if, if that's what the elders think. There's no pecking order. Here I am with a territory to love people. And that's what the Sunday school teachers think. And that's what the youth minister thinks. And, and those that are in college go to college and they're like, wow, look, here's a dorm. I could love all these people because I'm here. Here's a class and they're, all these people have my major. I could just love them. And it's, it really is that simple. That here we are, God places us in territories to love others. So I'm going to give you a Jonah test and then pray for us all. What Jonah doesn't get, that God is being so patient, asking good questions, trying to show him a city, trying to creatively intervene. What Jonah doesn't get is that he should be defining himself based on the fact that he knows who God is and that nothing's more important than that. There's, that's his identity. And instead, he is defining himself that he is an Israelite. And that's his identity. And here's how we do it. And this will be, as some people would say, meddling. I'm going to bother you. But it's only so we'll repent. Anthropologists make it very clear we can define who our people are by answering this question. Who would you let your kids marry? Because we only let people marry our people. So if you think, my daughter better not marry anyone who makes less than X amount, then your identity is tied to how much money you make. If you say, my daughter better not marry anybody who doesn't live in this area, then your identity is caught up in that area. If you say, my daughter better not marry anybody who's not my ethnicity, then your identity is caught up in your ethnicity. And if you say, my daughter better not marry anybody who doesn't love the Lord, you agree with Scripture. Our culture, our shared identity is that we know who God is. And it bothers us when people don't. So evangelism exists because worship doesn't. Because we see what an amazing God we have and we get fired up and we think, everybody ought to worship this God. Everybody ought to worship this God. Look at all that he's done. And we go to people, not even first maybe because we love them. Like they're secondary. We just love God and it bothers us. How can you live without giving this God praise. I have to tell you about him because he deserves your praise. And Jonah's idea is I'm so glad they don't know who he is. I'm so glad they don't give him praise. I hope they die a terrible, awful death. And we are far too much like Jonah. But God is just as patient with us, loves us just as much, and will change us to be more like him and less like Jonah when we yield. Let me pray that that is what we'll do. Lord, 
we're going to sing about your faithfulness. Great is your faithfulness. And I pray that we would just focus on that and love that. Your faithfulness to us. When we complain, when we are narrow, when we are full of hatred, you are patient and you are loving and you are wanting to change us. And I pray that this morning we would say, here we are, God, change us. Make us more like you. Make us full of love. Make the very bottom to the very top of who we are is that we're people who know who you are. And that everything else is so secondary and so small because knowing who you are is so big and so wonderful and so forever. I pray it would define us and that we would live just loving the people who are around us and that we would please you with the way we live in love. I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you stand?